Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the What's Holding You Back Writing Challenge edition of the 7am Novelist. I'm Michelle Hoover, your host. This month, we're live talking about everything that might hold a writer back from producing the work that they really want to write. And today we get to hear from a past student of mine and one of my favorite people, Michael Giddings. Good morning, Michael. Thank you so much for being with us. Hi, Michelle. Thanks for having me. Now, Michael Giddings is a writer and a cartoonist. He's also a musician. He lives in Windsor Terrace, Brooklyn. His recent work can be found in Defunct Magazine and Suburbia Journal. His chapbook, which recently came out, is called Kelly Marie Wants to Talk to You, and it's available from the Cupboard Pamphlet. Michael teaches preschool and is an associate fiction editor at Fatal Flaw Literary Magazine. He is at work on a novel called The Homeschooler, and that is a novel in which Kelly Marie will also return. Now, before I, I, I was talking with Michael a little bit before we got going, and he said, oh, you should cut out that last line, Kelly Marie will return. I'm like, what? We want Kelly Marie to return. And then he started talking about building this whole fictional universe with his work and being very careful about how he does it. So Michael, what are you doing with this broader uh, universe, fictional universe in which all your work kind of touches upon? Well, one of the things that fascinates me about fiction is the life that characters take on outside of the text. and I have always been fascinated with continuity, with the way that sequels work, and especially just the way that a fictional universe can grow outside of itself from sort of the very simple literary, or I shouldn't say very simple, but the literary criticism kind of way where people are constantly trying to interpret what a Shakespeare character means or what they're, how they should be performed um, to something sort of wider reaching, uh, like characters that appear over and over again. J.D. Salinger is a good example of that. Um, and of course, I've always I've been a lifelong fan of comic books where characters will just go on sort of into infinite space forever and ever. And yeah, in my own work, I have always had the characters come back. Um, a protagonist in one story or in one novel will be a side character in another one. And I'm just interested in the way that they grow. And I'm also interested in the way that the reader helps them grow. So I think everything that I write lately has been for the benefit of this sort of internal multiverse fictional universe. That's that's incredible. So touching upon our focus here, what holds you back? I mean, I would think this this kind of continual universe that's outside you or that you're you're kind of creating, does it does it kind of help you keep the material going? I mean, does it can you because you because you can always feed off this continual story that already kind of exists, or does it create problems because you have so much story? I mean, what does it do in terms of your process? Everything is a double-edged sword in that way. Um, it, it absolutely does kind of fuel me and keep me going forward. I do not know what the end goal is because I'm definitely one of those writers who has to discover the story as I'm drafting it. And even as I'm revising it, it I can't work with an outline. Sort of the second I sit down, even, even if I have too clear of an idea of what's happening in my head, I'll just stop before I start. 
So, you know, in terms of building the thing, I don't know what I'm trying to do. I, I want them to have their own lives. Um, I'm talking about the fictional characters here. And I want those lives to go on and the stories to kind of be bigger than what they are. Um, at the same time, it really, really bogs me down. I spent my entire writing session this morning trying to figure out if I'd written something. I thought <laughs> I'd written it. Um, and I couldn't find it. You know, it, it, I, I'm, I'm kind of a mess in terms of organization. And I was scrolling through different drafts and reworking, tweaking things, but I could not find sort of the scene in question. Um, and then in terms of, you know, the thing I was working on this morning is a campus novel. It's somewhat complete in terms of a first draft. It's almost there. It has a couple more things that need to be written. Um, and now it's also a matter of finding, you know, in terms of pacing where all of these separate pieces fit. Um, so I just find myself scrambling and moving things around and feeling kind of the weight of the interconnected universe on my shoulders while I do it. Right, right. Yeah. But, you know, you just have to follow your own process. You can't really... I mean, it can be helpful to learn other tools, maybe from other writers, but but sometimes, um, I mean, I, I wrote a, a first draft of a novel that I'm trying to finish now, and I just went off in a direction that I just shouldn't have gone, and and it really tripped me up, and so when I went back and I started I started revising it just this last um last December, and I'm, I'm kind of finishing up the new draft now, which is kind of amazingly fast for me. Um, I went completely instinctual and very different than how I drafted the first one. I'm so much happier with it, but it, it drove me crazy. <laughs> I'm how like, far, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> how, how far down that road do you did you get before you kind of had a sense that this was a misstep? I finished a whole draft. It was oh terrible. <laughs> It's terrible. I know and I teach this stuff. I'm like, Rochelle, what are you doing? <laughs> this is a note to everyone that even if you have two published novels and you teach novel writing, you can still F it up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, and that's just part of the process, I think. I think sometimes we have to go the wrong direction to figure out which direction to go. And then in terms of your process, I also speak to writers about, you know, writing is this abstract thing in an abstract universe. We don't have paint to play with. We don't have rocks to play with. We don't even, we don't have a musical instrument. We don't have something concrete that we can feed off on. So you think about a sculptor um, sculpting a, a statue. They initially have to have the stone in which they're working from, but we don't even have that. So lots of times we have to kind of, I don't know, vomit up the stone. <laughs> You know, mm -hmm. in some way, we have to have that organic material because it's not there yet. And so what it sounds like is you have a lot of organic material now, right? And then, but then you have to search through and figure out how to sculpt it down. And 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 that can be a mess because organic material is a mess. It No, it, it really is. And I do, I mean, the worst, because I've been, you know, producing material for a very long time now. And since a lot of it is related and the characters are reoccurring, you know, again, the double-edged sword thing, 
I have to kind of find new ways to introduce these characters. I think the thing that I should make clear is that all of the work, while it is interconnected, is supposed to be standalone. I've never written a book that was a direct sequel, and I've always been trying to write things that you can just pick up and read. And if you catch on that there's a larger context, that's maybe a fun thing, but I think that it really has to work on its own merits. So it's it's been kind of a challenge to kind of do physical descriptions of characters over and over again, and they get wackier and wilder and definitely make me stretch as a writer in terms of the ways that I play with language to introduce them again and again. Yeah. Um, can you talk about your new chapbook um, and kind of the process of how you got that out? It's very exciting. So you are actually the the second uh, student of mine that's been published through Chapbook. We also had Reed Sherling, who won a Harvard Review Prize for Chapbook work, and he actually shrunk his novel incubator down because um, he he has that kind of short story, almost poet poet background, and and the longer form just wasn't quite working for him for this particular book. So he shrunk it down and he submitted it to the Harvard Review. And uh, Lily King actually chose it for the prize and gave, he did a reading at Harvard and she gave an introduction to it. It was all very exciting. Um, and this this idea of a chapbook, and it just seems it's, it's just another great way, another great format that people can publish through um, that I think not a lot of people think about as well. So can you talk about your journey towards getting this chapbook out? Sure. Well, the Cupboard Pamphlet who put it out has been sort of a favorite indie press of mine for many years. Um, they've published works by friends of mine and by my former teacher, Jen Howard. Um, she has a couple books through them and I've been a subscriber for years. I really like them. They put out, the, the books are small. Um, they're about this size, this is mine. Um, and they are, strictly under 10,000 words in length. Um, most of them are sort of experimental short story form, but they take like a little bit more of a verse approach sometimes. Um, there's poetics in it as well. And they're just, they're nice books too. They're really kind of fun to hold and to flip through. Um, and I tried for years to publish, I would I would submit every uh, every year when their when their submissions opened, and this was actually sort of the underdog submission. This was not the one that I thought would be uh, selected. Um, the one the year before, I I wrote it with the cupboard in mind. I was like, they'll love this. Um, this is this is the book, and it was sort of unanimously rejected with no comment and. So I was really kind of surprised that this was the one. Um, now that it kind of exists in its final form, I can see it. And what I love about this book and as sort of a debut publication for me is that it launches kind of three novels out of it. The, the first story, uh, Kelly Marie Wants to Talk to You, is both sort of a prequel story and an after-the-fact story to my novel incubator manuscript. Um, yeah. It's the same narrator, Sophia. She's telling a story from what I believe to be an older vantage point than the novel incubator novel, 
but she's talking about herself when she's much younger. And the book is sort of all about memory and nostalgia and blurring things in the way that we forget things or misremember them. And that sort of ends up splitting open the reality of the universe. And it opens up kind of a whole portal to a multiverse uh, alternate universe dimension thing. Um, and all of that's sort of represented here, you know, that so there's that story and that's related to my uh, novel incubator manuscript. The second story is connected to the campus novel I've been working on. And then there's sort of a dystopian hipster Brooklyn thing happening later in the book. Um, and things sort of unravel from there. Uh, yeah, and I think most of these pieces in this book were written kind of between bigger projects. And that's why they have sort of this in-between feel to them. It was, you know, Stephen King talks about, uh, both Stephen King and Larry McMurtry have pieces of writing about finishing long epic works of fiction and then feeling like they have a little bit of gas left in the tank and they'll produce like a short novel or Stephen King has like a great novella collection or long short story collection. And I feel like that's what happened here. I didn't feel like I had completely said what I needed to say in the book, but the pieces also don't belong within other manuscripts. Um, and I do think, you know, it's a nice side benefit. They ended up standing alone pretty well too. Yeah. Oh, that's great. And, and because you're not Stephen King, you mm -hmm. probably don't have as many places to publish that. Like you can't just put it out on its own. Um, you probably need, you know, a little help. I think we all, because we're not Stephen King, need a little help. Um, so I just love that there is a place that you can send that that kind of in-between work, in-between subject-wise and process-wise, but also in-between in terms of length, because where else can you send work that's under 10,000 words and over eight? I mean, it, there's just not, there's not that many publishing uh, platforms that you can do that. So it just kind of opens up a whole other world for people and for readers as well. I think it's a lot of fun. When you yeah. get your novel published, they will seek it out. No, for sure. I mean, I love I love the idea of it sort of functioning like a single before the album comes out. Yes. And I do I do definitely want to, you know, make sure to plug the covered pamphlet here, both for people to submit to and also all of the chapbooks that they have available are really good and worth reading. And they have sort of a for some money off deal on the website, too. So it's it's a it's a worth uh, worthwhile publication to check out. Wonderful. So we'll put the um, link to the covered pamphlet in the podcast notes um, and on our Substack so that people can find that. So you were also talking about um, before we started recording. Um, you were referring to uh, the interview I did with Virginia Pie at the end of our first pages um, passages of summer. Uh, Thing that I did this last summer. And she was talking about building scaffolding for her book. And that, when you listened to that interview, kind of struck you and ma made you get thinking about this, what's holding you back process. So what, why did that get you thinking? Is oh, that it, a part of the multiverse, this huge thing that you're trying to put scaffolding on? I mean, scaffolding just as a concept is fascinating to me. I mean, I'm from Brooklyn. So scaffolding is up all the time <laughs> everywhere. I'm, and you get used to it. 
And then when it just inexplicably vanishes one day, I'm the type of person that I miss it. I'm like, where did it go? Now it's just a church. Um, <laughs> or, or like, you know, complain about it because it's, of course, it's raining and now the scaffolding is gone. Now it's not here anymore. Right. Um, right. But no, that, that interview really did resonate with me. Uh, she was talking about drafting quickly and writing a lot of words and maybe, you know, you end up kind of giving yourself clues. Finding the story as you go was another thing she talked about. And they're like, I, I can't, you know, work from an outline. I can't really have any idea what I'm doing when I sit down to write or I just won't begin. And so it was super useful to hear about that experience. Um, and yes, I've been, I've been drafting a new novel recently and I've been trying to stretch myself in terms of the characters I'm using and focusing on. I want them to be farther and farther away from who I am as a person. And that is just a much more challenging imaginative uh, task to undertake because motivation is not as clear to me um, and reactions are not as clear. My characters always behave in different ways than I would personally. Um, I've had to kind of reassure my family of that over and over again since this book has come out. Um, but I want it to be kind of even more dramatically so because I think, you know, it will be a more colorful world um, with different perspectives right. in it. But yeah, the other day I was, I was writing a scene in which a character literally started asking herself her own motivations. And it really frustrated me to be in this place where I was typing it out. I'm like, I can't believe I have to put this in here. It's so embarrassing to put this piece of like, of writing in here that can never be used. No one can see this um, because it's not even really writing. It's asking myself, what are you trying to do? What are you trying to achieve here? Um, yeah. Or, you know, what is this other person trying to achieve here? And yeah, I think, I think powering through that was actually a little bit difficult because I became instantly mortified. <laughs> so she's not someone who doesn't know her own mind or is even confused by her own motivations. It's just that you, you haven't discovered her motivations. Well, I think they all are. Like I, when, when we start talking about motivations, I know that there's such a thing as sort of a direct concrete motivation. Um, in the opening story of my chapbook, Sophia agrees to go on a play date that she doesn't want to go on. And her concrete motivation for doing so is that she'll be allowed to watch a Bugs Bunny VHS tape. Uh, like if she doesn't do it, she won't get to watch the tape again. Um, very 90s story. But yeah, I think generally with motivations, I can't, I can't even track them in my favorite novel. So I do think that there's always going to be an aspect of ambiguity there. Yeah. Um, but this was sort of a turning point moment in the scene. And yes, the character was confused, but there probably wasn't really even time to be having sort of a Hamlet-esque internal debate with oneself. <laughs> <laughs> and I think the important thing is that 
if yeah, if a character is too conscious of their own motivations, they'll probably be wrong, or yeah. we'll mis mistrust them in some way, right? If they can tell exactly, because that that's stuff that exists in the deeper subconscious. So the writer needs to know it, but the character really can't know it. And if they do know it, we're like, yeah, you're probably wrong about that. You're probably lying to yourself about that. So understanding all those many layers of what they think their motivation is and what their true motivation is. Um, I think a lot of writers leave that stuff in the manuscript though. So they write it, write it, write it, and they forget that this is actually writing for themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think that's part of what you're talking about in terms of not planning. You know, I think a lot of writers, I don't know, even on Scrivener, there's like a little character, like bio page or so I've never used it a template to kind of figure out character and other other writers do other like side writing for character um or just thinking about it but you are writing through it and I think a lot of writers that write instinctually they're going to have that material in the book because you're telling yourself the story and you just need to to realize later that you're going to take that out um and I think a lot of of more beginning writers don't realize that that's material that you need to take out that you need to go through and again get out of there because it's for them not for the actual reader um, yeah I, I mean the thing too about it is there are surely relics left behind too and there's some beauty in that as well I was thinking yeah. about it this morning when I was thinking about sort of scaffolding that we leave in um and, you know, to go back to that interview that we were talking about, sort of, you know, what what you, you were both talking about giving the reader hints about where you're supposed to focus in and kind of sometimes you set up a little arrow pointing like, you know, focus in here because this is going to be important. Um, but even just in general, little moments from earlier drafts. I've been kind of mercilessly cutting again at my incubator manuscript and I've been finding little turns of phrase or jokes or quirky little sentences that are, you know, no longer darlings to me, but were in like draft, say seven. And it's interesting to find them. I'm like, wow, I, I have no attachment to this anymore, but I had such a strong attachment to it in like 2019 um and you know i think that some of those will end up hiding in the final book um mm -hmm. i'm gonna pull most of them because they don't make sense but um yeah. but i kind of you kind of love to see it and i was wondering if i i'm gonna try and now notice that when i'm reading as well oh right yeah, I had, a, I had a sentence from my first novel that I just stuck with and stuck with and stuck with. I thought it was a great sentence. And then when I was editing it in the final phases of getting the book published, I looked at the sentence and I realized it made no sense. Like I realized there was actually nothing there. I'm like, what happened? What? Why did my brain go away? You know, and why, do I, why have I just gained it now? I guess we're always learning, right? That's part of it. It's kind um, of the heart wants what it wants too, with stuff <laughs> like that. Like you fall in love with something in 2016 and uh, yeah, you can hang on to it, like really hold it tight. It's like a song that you loved as a teenager and you listen to it again and you're like, what? Yes. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> um, you're cartooning. Do you, how do you, do you go back and forth? Cause you, you, you 
create images of a lot of your characters as well. You gave me a lovely card at the end of the novel incubator with the, with the character on, I loved it. I mean, does your cartooning help you with your process? Um, and is it, is, does it kind of keep you going? How does that, how is that working with you? It, it definitely does. It's, um, it's, it's one of sort of when, when we talk about kind of advice for other writers, as far as I have it, um, breaking out of the genre is really helpful. Doodling sort of compulsively has just always been a thing that I've always done. I, I wanted to be a cartoonist before I got obsessed with literary fiction yeah. and Yes, I definitely, I've, I'm actually sort of undertaking a project and I can kind of announce it here. I haven't put it up on social media or anything yet, but I wanted to do a thing with the chat book where it's, you know, it's a 50 something page book and I counted the characters in it. And in terms of named characters, there are 41 characters. Um, and most of them are reoccurring. Most of them have some sort of a backstory to them that you don't get in this book. So I was going to kind of encourage people to A, take pictures of the chapbook in interesting places so I could put it on social media and feel good about yeah. myself. Um, and then as a thank you, I was going to, I have these amazing uh, postcards that are sort of like pulp novels that have been reappropriated. And I was going to do a drawing of one of the side characters from the book and like a little extra sort of living story that connects to the text of the book and send that out to people who want them. Um, and so it's kind of a way to have like a little unique part of the world that's going to be ever growing. And yeah, no, I think it does. It helps to draw them. At the same time, I always have to kind of Keep myself in check that this is a cartoon version of the character it's not the actual character because yeah. some books do read in a more cartoonish way right. than others um and it's interesting like i mean catch 22 is a favorite example because it's very easy to exaggerate those characters in your mind and then there are these shocking moments of violence or reality that happen in the book and you're kind of snapped back into it um so when I draw my characters, I always have to kind of keep myself in check with that. And I'm sometimes even a little like wary of doing it because I'm like, what if this had like, what if this tricks people into picturing this, you know, I'm not a great drawer. I'm, a, I'm not a great artist in terms of visual arts. So, uh, you know, what if, what if this is what they're seeing now? Um, so, you know, back and forth on that one, but it does help immensely. Excellent. I, yeah, I wish I could draw to save my life, but I can't. Um, I'm going to have to let Michael go. But everyone, you can find our full set, our full schedule on our Substack page at 7amnovelist.substack.com. Subscribe there for updates. You can also find our full range of podcast episodes on that page, including episodes from our past two writing challenges, as well as on any of your favorite podcast platforms. And if you like what we're doing, please follow, rate, and review our podcast so we can reach other listeners. So I do have a big last question for Michael that might take a little while, but what advice do you have? Not a lot of writers have this full separate fictional universe that they've built, which I think is incredible. And I, I hope everyone grabs this uh, chat book that he's published as, as a sneak peek into all his other work because his writing is just gorgeous and sweet and brilliant and funny. Um, Michael, what advice would you give to other writers about breaking through their own writing obstacles? 
Well, thank you so much for saying that. It, it made my day. I'm going to be happy all day now. Um, I think for me, I don't have any kind of, you know, magic cure. Imagine that. But um, I, I, what helps for me is to kind of break out of whatever sort of mode I'm locked into. And sometimes that is as simple as going to a different medium. Um, we talked about drawing, but re-listening to old albums helps, like getting getting more involved with music. TV and movies can be good for that as well. Um, but then within sort of the work itself, I've as I've gotten more focused on sending things out and figuring out where they belong and how to maybe market something, it's definitely held me back in terms of the creative freedom that I feel when I'm drafting um, because it's just, it's a thing that weighs on you and it's a necessary evil, but it's really unhelpful for me when I'm drafting. And so for me, I have to give myself permission to write something genuinely stupid. Um, like goofiness is an important thing. And sometimes that, that I'm, you know, I'm not going to use this, but I'm going to write it because it's cathartic. And I don't know that that's necessarily the thing that all writers would want to turn to, you know, maybe silliness and goofiness isn't as important to them as it is to me. But I think like shaking up your own sense of genre is good. Like read something very pulpy or like erotica or horror, or, you know, if you're really strictly a prose person, delve into poetry. I've been trying to read a lot more poetry myself because I almost never do. Um, and so it's just, it's a form of stretching. And then, yeah. yeah, you know, sort of applying what you find there to your own work. It's helped me a lot. I think that's wonderful. I think a lot of writers don't let themselves play. Yes. And I try to use that that word a lot in my classes now. Let yourself play a little bit because otherwise you're gonna you're, you're gonna get stuck. The work has too much weight on it. Every every word you put down has too much weight, and and you're just that's not gonna work for you. Um, it's it, you're trying to write a final draft from the very beginning. It doesn't work. So we need that whimsy. I think we all need that whimsy if it's not natural to us. All right, Michael. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you being it, and I I want. When you start doing them, I want one of those cards because that seems like I can put that on my wall and frame it. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Okay, thank you, Michael. And thank you very much, everyone. And I hope uh, you're able to get back to your writing desk this morning and have a fabulous writing day. Thank you. Thanks so much.